LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Tammy Strobel, who joins us to discuss her book, You Can Buy Happiness and It's Cheap, how one woman radically simplified her life and how you can too. While the new field of happiness research makes headlines, and yet the 99% face austerity at every turn, blogs like The Art of Nonconformity, Zen Habits and Miss Minimalist attract millions looking to find more happiness, community and fulfilment in less stuff, less debt and less wage chasing. Tammy and her husband are living the voluntary downsizing or smart sizing dream and in You Can Buy Happiness she combines research on well-being with numerous real world examples to offer practical inspiration. Her fresh take on our things, our work and our relationships spell out micro actions that anyone can take step off the getting and spending treadmill and into a life that's more conscious and connected, sustainable and sustaining, heartfelt and happy. Hello and welcome Tammy and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well thanks for having me. Tammy, today we're going to talk about uh, the journey that you've been on uh, over the last few years and it actually led you to write a book um, about your experiences and the book's called You Can Buy Happiness and It's Cheap. Uh, subtitle mm-hmm. how one woman radically simplified her life and how you can too now we're living in rapidly changing times uh, particularly since the global financial crash of 2008 and mm-hmm. current events have led a lot of people to re-examine their lives and to reconsider what's important to them both in their, their realm of work but also their personal life uh, some people are doing it out of necessity but increasingly people are making the choice to sort of look again at what's really important in their life. So in that context, perhaps you could just share with listeners uh, a bit about your story. Sure. Well, I um, I kind of, so I went, you know, did the whole college thing and uh, got out of college and got a position in the investment management industry. And it really kind of wasn't my ideal job when I accepted it, but I felt like I should you know, go for it because I didn't have other opportunities. And unfortunately, that position just wasn't a good fit for me. I really got stuck kind of in the work spend cycle. And I was driving like two hours a day, you know, kind of like the typical American, I gained weight and just, I got into a depression. And so that was sort of, um, as a result of that experience, my husband and I started talking about simplifying our lives. And um, since that time, we've, you know, dramatically downscaled, paid off our debt, moved into a tiny house. And it's definitely taken time. But from where I was, you know, seven years ago to now, I feel like a different person. I'm happier, more grateful, and just kind of more centered. Well, you talk in the book a little about your background and your childhood, um, what your upbringing was like, um, what your parents were like, what the full family dynamic was. You, you kind of you admit in the book that it's it's sort of it's maybe from an outsider's perspective, it's odd that you got yourself into this position of you know working harder than you wanted to to buy stuff you didn't need to pay debt that was you were increasingly struggling with. Sure. Yeah, it's, um, you know, looking back, it's definitely, it's an odd thing that I got into that situation, especially with my family, because on my dad's side, my, my grandparents were super frugal, you know, they lived through the Great Depression, they built their own um, little cottage in the Bay Area. And, you know, my mom's parents, on the other hand, were really wealthy. And my mom grew up with a lot of money and such. But, you know, she was overall pretty grounded with money and, and spending. And 
my parents really tried to impart those kinds of lessons on me. But then it was like, I went to college, got into this job and was like, Oh, I've got all this money and credit cards, and I can just, you know, spend and um, it's interesting to me that it's so easy to get sucked into that trap. So that's kind of a little bit about how and why. As I said in the introduction, a lot of us are being sort of forced to reassess what we're doing with our lives because, you know, maybe we've lost a job and maybe stemming from that house has been repossessed. Uh, that can cause uh, relationships to break up. But also, I mean, the changes that are coming down the line economically and I suppose it's inf- affecting the world socially as well. We also have a, a choice uh, in how we respond to that. And your book's very good at pointing this out and just saying that even if disaster strikes, you still have a choice to decide, OK, what am I going to do in response to this? Do I just let it overwhelm me or are there steps that I can take to cope better with this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely, um, you know, something it's kind of something I'm always revisiting, you know, like during 2012, um, last year, it was a pretty rough year for me personally. My dad was very ill and then he passed away and we had a a lot of other family traumas come up, but, um, you know, it was hard and I'm still sad about some of those things, but because we've structured our lives in a way that enables us to be flexible, to be debt-free, um, and focus on our relationships, I feel like we've been able to craft a resilient life instead of kind of letting um, trauma overwhelm us. So I definitely, you know, I tried to impart that in my book just because I think we we do have options, you know, um, and that's not to try and, um, you know, make people feel like they have to be happy all the time because that's not really realistic, but you you can make choices to create kind of a happier and resilient life. Whether people are being forced uh, to face dramatic change in their, in their work or personal lives or whether they're just thinking, you know, that this is not working for me anymore, I'm going to choose something different. The thing you stress, I think your phrase is to to get a personal vision of happiness because a lot of us don't spend enough time or maybe any time at all thinking about what is would really work for us you know we might have this vague background dissatisfaction but we sort of just go with that because you know the messages we get from the media and Mm -hmm. uh, the corporate world are reinforcing these things and even if it's building up inside us it sometimes it can be you know obviously it can get to a crisis point when people just can't take anymore but a lot of people are not yet there would benefit Mm -hmm. from maybe thinking about, okay, what is it that makes me happy? And then see if they can orientate their lives around that instead of it being just consigned to the margins. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, um, you know, whatever your circumstance, kind of stepping back and asking that question, you know, what makes me happy? What makes me feel joy in my everyday life is really important because, that's going to look different for everybody. And that's, that's totally okay. And, you know, hopefully you can kind of answer those questions and start crafting a life around the answers before kind of crisis strikes. Because if you can do that, it, it might make um, a loss or trauma a little bit easier to deal with. Now, one of the most interesting aspects of your story, and it's the one that's probably attracted the most attention, is your house. You didn't downsize Uh, all in one go but where this process and the process is undoubtedly not over yet but where it has brought you to now is that you guys live in an extremely small house and when I first saw it I thought oh that's cute and that's quaint can't be practical Mm -hmm. Uh, and also these people must be one in a billion that are doing this but actually you're not the first and this is a sort of growing movement and uh, you tell us about the house and just how all that came about. Sure. Well, um, so we live in a a tiny house. It kind of, it's on wheels. So um, it's uh, 16 feet long and eight feet wide, 13 feet tall. And it it looks like a little cabin that you would, you know, you know, see in the woods or something like that. So it's wood. And, you know, personally, I think it's really cute. (laughs) Um, But we, we designed the house to meet our needs and it works really well for us. 
Um, but back in 2007, as we were kind of in the midst of downsizing our lives, I stumbled across um, a YouTube video featuring Dee Williams. And um, that video kind of talked about Dee's story of downsizing and focusing on what was really important in her life. And she happened to build this really cute house on wheels. And when I saw that video, I was like, immediately, I wanted to live in a house like that, just because, you know, it's portable, it's cute, um, you know, we could pay cash for something like that and not have a mortgage. And so um, we kind of worked toward this goal of building our own tiny house. And, um, you know, eventually we got there, obviously. But yeah, it's, um, it's definitely been a process and a lot of fun to live in this space and connect with other folks who are living in tiny houses or tiny apartments or, or whatever their situation may be. A lot of people listening will perhaps think, oh, well, that just sounds like a motorhome or a sort of big RUV or something, but it's not really like that at all, is it? No, it's not. Um, and I would suggest, you know, if you want to see pictures, just go to my website, rowdykittens.com. I have a whole page dedicated to the little house and you can check out photos and videos, but it literally looks like a little cabin. And, um, you know, the outside is wood, the interior is wood based, um, and it's really built for year round living. So it's very different from an RV in that way. Um, so right now we're living in Northern California in a, a, a much colder climate than um, when we were in Portland. And so we've survived really, it's been fine during winter, you know, with snow and things like that. But with an RV, it would be a little harder just because the insulation isn't um, as robust. So you mentioned that it was portable. Is there a, I presume there's a point to that. You didn't just randomly make it portable. I know. Um, yeah, we definitely, the the choice to build the house on wheels was intentional for us because we wanted to be able to move our house. So, um, you know, we were living in Portland for about two and a half, three years. And um, now we're living in Northern California on my in-laws uh, property and we'll be moving again to Chico soon. And so, um, for us, it's really nice to have the house on wheels just because we haven't really picked a spot to settle down per se yet. Um, and so, you know, being able to bring the house along with us on a move is kind of awesome. <laughs> well, that's one of the issues there that you've touched upon is actually land, because mm -hmm. I noticed after I found out about your story, I did a bit of research and, you know, there's similar buildings that you can get, various structures, you can get very little ones over in Europe here. The main issue, if you were choosing to build your own house here or buy something like that, you know, sort of a kit house, is where to put it. In fact, even if you're just building a conventional house from scratch, I'm sure this would be the same in, in many, if not most areas of the States, the land will quite often be the biggest part of the overall expense. So I guess if people are thinking, oh, I could downsize and live in a much smaller house, because if it was something like yours, it would be a question of where to put it. And even people who do live in caravans, and move around and people who live in uh, you know narrow boats and what have you putting it somewhere is an issue so you're lucky enough to have that problem solved but are you aware of any other solutions that that people have you know they get a house like yours they're trying to find out where to put it they don't necessarily have know anyone is it going mean, can you are there any plots are there any sort of Sure. Well, I can definitely, you know, we're very fortunate in that, you know, um, my in-laws have um, quite a big piece of land in Northern California that we're on currently. But when we were in Portland, that wasn't the case. So um, as we were building the tiny house, we had no idea where we were going to put it. We were kind of flying by <laughs> the seat of our pants, you know, and crossing our fingers that something would work out, which it did. And um, what we did is basically we contacted our friend network, um, close friends to acquaintances and said, hey, this is what we're doing. Um, do you know of a piece of land that we could park our tiny house on and pay rent to be in that space? And sure enough, um, friends of friends offered their backyard to us. And so that's where we were parked in Portland and we paid um, $400 in rent for that space and then um, 
you know, of course, for utilities, we paid like, I think it was 100 a month for, you know, water, garbage, internet, etc. Um, and as we're moving to Chico right now, we're working with a realtor to find a space in the area. And we're going to do something similar as we did in Portland. So you really, I guess my best advice would be to be creative and to really connect with your friend network, because I think that's kind of the best way to find a space for these little homes on wheels. You mentioned utilities, and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of talk these days about resilience and um, off-grid living. So how does it work with the tiny house regards to electricity, water, what have you? Sure. Well, we're kind of set up like um, an RV in that regard. So we're, we're, um, we have a kind of like an RV hose for water. So we're hooked up to the grid. Um, and we're also plugged into the grid. Um, uh, <laughs> we're, we're living on a ranch. So there's a, a pump house near us. Um, and uh, we're plugged into the pump house to get our electricity. <laughs> um, but on average, our electric bill is like five to twenty dollars a month depending on on the time of year Um, and then we also have our composting toilet and um, we don't have a traditional shower in our little house so um, we either when we were in Portland we showered at the gym and now um, we're neighbors with our with my father-in-law so he lets us use his shower to do that but in the spring when it gets warmer and the water line doesn't freeze, we'll, we'll do an outdoor shower here at the ranch. But when we get to Chico, we'll, we'll probably do the gym thing again. So that's kind of how the setup works um, for us. But yeah, we're still plugged into the grid. We don't have solar panels yet. Now, when folks actually get a look at uh, your tiny house and say on the website, there's that video and they can get a little tour of it. um, Mm -hmm. A lot of people whether they're used to living in even relatively small accommodation, it's still probably never lived in anything that small. And their minds will probably go to, particularly as there's two of you living in there, how on earth do you, do you not strangle each other living in such a small space? How do you, you know, <laughs> where do you go? How, you know, how do you both live? How do you do all the, the quote unquote normal things in such a space? Um, well, it's, it's funny. Like people always ask this question and, um, you know, I really, enjoy spending time with Logan. (laughs) He's my best friend, you know, so it's like for us, um, we can just be in this space and kind of be quiet together or talk or listen to the radio. And, you know, we also have a sleeping loft. So if there are times when we each kind of want our own separate space, you know, someone might be in the loft reading or um, we have a little window seat in the downstairs area that's great for reading or surfing the internet or whatever. But also, you know, um, for us, part of this tiny house is that we love to be outside a lot. So, you know, I walk um, tons every day. We cycle everywhere. And um, I don't know, it's it works for us. And we the thing that's cool about smaller spaces is, you know, when problems do arise or, you know, Uh, you have a little argument or whatever, you can't really run from the problem. Like it forces you to really communicate and um, be intentional in that way. So it's definitely something I've appreciated about living in smaller spaces throughout the years. We should say at this point that it's not necessarily about downsizing per se. That's just something that you guys ended up doing. It's just you arrived Mm -hmm. at that point. You thought, well, no, look, this is what we need to do in order to get where we want to be there's an expression now that people use that smart sizing which is more it probably does involve downsizing but it's getting the the degree of it that works for you and it's all mm-hmm. really about a better life balance uh, you know less work if that's appropriate which usually means less debt and if you have mm-hmm. less work and less debt then you have more time for things that you want to do yeah definitely and I you know talk about that in the book and um, you know our tiny house is the choice for us to live in this tiny space is more on the extreme side of things. But, um, you know, you don't have to live in a tiny house to kind of smart size your life. And, um, again, it kind of goes back to that question, the happiness question, what brings you joy, what makes you happy and, um, kind of figuring that out and going from there. So, um, you know, for example, I have a friend in Portland who downsized from a 5,000 square foot house to a 1,200 square foot condo. And so 
she's much happier now because, you know, obviously it's less expensive, less maintenance, all these things. But um, there are lots of options to kind of, you know, craft maybe a smaller, simpler life. And importantly, you don't have to do it all in one go. And your book's mm-hmm. a really good example of this is that you couldn't reasonably, well, while preserving your sanity, have gone from where you were when you started to where you are now, just in one fell swoop, you basically had to approach it in a sort of stepwise fashion. Yeah. And I'm really a big fan of like these little micro actions and baby steps, because for me, there's no way I could have done this like in a month, you know, it's just not, um, it wasn't possible. Like I couldn't have gotten rid of all my stuff in a responsible way. Um, nor could I have afforded, you know, being able to build a tiny house at the time. So I also really think that um, since it took us, you know, kind of five plus years to get to this point in our lives, our behavior changes have stuck. Whereas I think if I had moved really quickly and fast, I probably wouldn't have um, um, continued with the lifestyle. And at the root of all this, and we kind of alluded to this already, is our sort of complex and subconscious and sometimes completely unacknowledged relationship with stuff yeah (laughs) stuff it's uh it's such an interesting thing like I looking back you know we had this big apartment and it was exploding with stuff and it really was interesting for me as we gave it away and donated things to charity that I just kind of felt lighter and lighter and less encumbered, which was nice because I could focus my energy on other things. So, you know, if you're thinking about smart sizing, um, taking some time to maybe write or just talk about your relationship with stuff is um, really helpful. And it's interesting reading your book, how you went through this process of gradually opening up to this idea of having less stuff and it's quite amusing some of the incidents actually between (laughs) you you, you and Logan kind of deciding what stuff you could do without and initially it was what you were holding on to things that you thought no actually yes we want to live differently but this stuff is important we'll keep this pile of stuff and that when you look back on it now it was so absurd of course you didn't need that stuff but it's just going through a gradual process as we've just said of not doing it all in one go and just constantly Uh, trying to be more conscious about your your living and your decisions yeah definitely and I you know for us I don't think that ever really changes like we're constantly kind of asking those core questions of like what makes us happy what stuff do we really need in the little house you know like because it's easy to still just like go online and just buy things you know that you might not need so it's really helpful for me to kind of wait if you know 30 days or whatever before I buy something new and um yeah it's it's definitely interesting just on a little side note because you know one of my passions is books and you know and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a writer too and mm-hmm. obviously use the internet for most research but I have this I do have this attachment to the books and I just wondered if you had any emotional attachment to books that you know because they oh, can yeah. be beautiful things quite often they're lovely things to hold in the hand I'm not, I don't have a kindle you know and I don't actually like reading things online if I'm going to read a lot of an online article I just print it out yeah, I I love books. And um, as we were downsizing, you know, I probably had got at least 500 books before we started getting rid of stuff. And um, now I have a really small library of books. And I also have a Kindle, which um, I got for Christmas. And I was kind of conflicted about getting the Kindle, like, would I like reading on it? Would I not? Because I just, you know, like you, I, I really feel like books are really beautiful, and they're nice to hold. So, I've really enjoyed the Kindle and, um, you know, I'm still reading normal print books as well. But for me, just even, you know, letting go of the books was really lovely because I gave most of them to the library or friends and I still do that. Like if I'm not referring to a book constantly, I I give it to someone to read most of the time or the library. And um, it's kind of nice to give back in that way and, and to just kind of let let something go. Because for me personally, you know, I had this huge collection of books, but I wasn't referring to 95% of them. They were just collecting dust. Yeah, well, kind of the idea of a library makes more sense. That's where, you know, public libraries came from in the first place, whenever books were so expensive uh, that mm-hmm. the, the ordinary people couldn't afford, even if they could read, they couldn't afford to buy them. Right, right. So, you know, it's... It's kind of nice to be able to do that. And especially 
here in California where I am, I know kind of libraries in general have faced a lot of budget cutbacks. And so being able to donate books to um, libraries is a nice thing to do, <laughs> especially in the midst of, you know, kind of all the downsizing that's happening in the state of California with um, programs and funding and things like that. You've got some staggering uh, statistics in the book, uh, one of which is regarding stuff and what people do with it and that we people buy so much stuff that they don't have room for it even in their 2,000 square feet houses. And that's a phenomenon of self-storage. And we all know what these units are. You see them all over the place, sometimes in old converted warehouses, sometimes purpose-built. And in the US currently, people spend $22 billion, which is just astronomical, uh, renting out 23 billion square feet of storage space in order to keep their stuff in stuff presumably that is not important enough that they actually need access to it on a daily basis or they want to have it in their own homes but still they hold on to it yeah it's those stats when i found them were just staggering i was shocked (laughs) um and now uh there's even i think a reality tv show about people who um, like, uh, have these storage units and kind of abandon them. And so then they're having these auctions with, um, people who buy the whole unit and then try and sell all this stuff. It's just really wild. So there's this whole, um, kind of industry (laughs) cropping up about selling other people's stuff that they've kind of left behind. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Even, um, Uh, In this tiny town we're at now, there's a huge um, storage unit facility, and it just strikes me as very strange for a town of like a thousand people. They've got like all these storage units, and I'm sure folks from outlying areas come in, but um, yeah, it's definitely wild. Well, I used to use a self-storage unit uh, for business purposes, basically just storing stock items. And uh, when I was down there, uh, quite often other people would come in and open up their units and go in and out. And uh, I can report that of that particular facility, which had around 200 individual units, my estimate that was, you know, probably about a third of those were for business use and all the rest was a collection of just bizarre things that you think, why are people keeping old sofas, standard lamps, mm-hmm. all bits of old furniture, boxes of broken things, stuff from decades i mean who knows the stuff that we carry around with us is colossal and people quite often move with their stuff as well yeah it's it's really interesting and you know like with anything storage units can be used for good but i think most of the time people are just paying for these spaces because there's this fear of of letting go of things that you might need someday but I really think that kind of just being able to let go of that additional stuff can open up a lot of space in your mind um, to do creative things, whether that's writing or photography or um, painting, whatever your interests are. So, um, you know, if you can uh, not have a storage uh, unit fee every month, you can spend that money on experiences or hobbies or, you know, getting ready to do a career change even. Well, we're getting to the nub of it now, really, aren't we? Because I mentioned earlier our relationship with stuff, and it seems to me that this this happens with property as well, with houses for obvious reasons, but even our stuff that we put in it, people associate it with security. Yeah, I mean, I think it's normal, you know, to want to feel secure. Like, everyone has that need. Like, having a a home is um, really tied to our own well-being, and it's a basic need that everyone has to have shelter. But I think... um, when we start using our homes as kind of uh, storage units, it's where we run into problems and can kind of get in, in over our heads. Regarding the issue of debt, it's not just that paying for stuff that we don't really need for the most part uh, keeps us working. And I say quite often in jobs maybe that we don't like, uh, there's an emotional cost to debt as well as a profound psychological effect on people. Well, particularly when I say debt, not just debt that you can service, but obviously debt that you can can no longer service. And as I mentioned briefly at the start, this can result in damaged relationships. Mm-hmm, definitely. And I think, you know, the biggest thing is just the stress associated with debt or, you know, trying to pay the mortgage every month or whatever um, it is when you're kind of... Um, overtapped. I mean, for me personally, when I was in the investment management industry, I, I definitely felt that weight of stress and that 
in turned into like depression and, and weight gain and just kind of this feeling of disconnection from my core relationships, like with Logan and my parents. And, um, you know, it's just not a good place to be in at all. And so kind of getting out of that is, um, a really important thing, especially for personal happiness and just to, um, you know, when you're happier, you're more likely to want to volunteer and kind of contribute to your community. So, um, it definitely, you're kind of your own personal state kind of moves outward, if that makes sense. You speak in the book also about the reaction of friends and family to uh, attempts to sort of downsize, smart size, whatever you want to call it, or perhaps make a career change that would allow you to do so. And quite often those reactions can be actually quite negative. And I think this stems probably from fear because subconsciously it causes them to reflect on their own situation. And as I said a moment ago, they associate material things with security. So there are many practical challenges to making these sort of life changes, but mainly as seen in the reaction of you know unsupportive friends and family, the main challenges are sort of psychological Mm -hmm, definitely. I mean, when we kind of started this process, our family kind of thought we were nuts, you know, especially my mom was, thought we were crazy and was just really concerned about our well-being and wanting to make sure that we were making the right choices. And, um, you know, really for us, um, it just involved lots of conversations to talking with them about why we were making certain choices. And by doing that, they became more and more supportive of our decisions. So, um, you know, with any relationship, I think it's um, important to have those conversations because it helps people understand and be more empathetic for where you're at in your own life. And, you know, it's like I always tell people, you know, you don't have to live in a tiny house or have really few belongings to be happy that um, uh, I'm not trying to to tell people what to do per se. No, it's, it's just about a means to an end. You don't have to do those things to be happy. But chances mm-hmm. are, if you're working a job that you don't like um, and you're in debt that you're struggling to pay, that you're probably not going to be happy. Exactly. So you also speak about car culture in the book mm-hmm. and of course uh, America famous stroke infamous for its <laughs> for its car culture but you know we have it largely here in Europe as well and you guys went through a journey there as well from metaphorically um, from having you know being a two-car household to being a no-car household and that involved a lot of uh, real rejigging of your schedule and, and relocating actually in, in some occasions. Yeah definitely and you know, it was interesting because for us, getting rid of the cars was one of the hardest things to do out of all of the stuff in our life. Like, um, and I think partly because cars are really convenient, they allow you to get to places really quickly. But at the same time, you know, when we sold our cars, we had five to six hundred dollars extra a month. And we were like, where is this money coming from? Like we had no idea of how much we were spending on our cars every month or every year. Um, And that just kind of goes to show how disconnected we were from our finances and where we were really spending our money. Um, And so, you know, by selling our cars, we paid off our debt a little bit faster. You know, we were healthier. And, um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, we're living in a rural area right now. And it's definitely been challenging without a car. Um, We're 12 miles from town. And so we have to be more mindful about our trips and the weather's a little harsher here. So while it's very beautiful in this area, we're opting to move to a larger town in the spring just because for transportation, it's going to be easier to get around. Um, and we're just not willing to buy another car at this point in our lives. And one of the most popular things to complain about in Britain, and God knows there's plenty of them, people like to complain about public transport. However, in my experience, it's mostly pretty good. I use the trains a lot and I really like mm-hmm. them. I don't like everything about them, but just mm-hmm. overall as a way to get around, I'd much rather... Yeah, it's amazing that you have, you know, that kind of infrastructure. And Portland, Oregon was wonderful for public transit. You know, we rode our bikes a lot, but I also use the transit system all the time. They have um, kind of like commuter trains and uh, um, great bike infrastructure and and good bus service. Whereas 
um, now that we're living in a rural area, there's definitely a huge gap and need for better public transit so that people don't have to have cars. Well, one of the problems that you have in the States, when I was visited there, I was in places like New York. So obviously it was easy to get around. No Mm -hmm. problem. In fact, a car is a positive disadvantage in a place like that. Sure. But it seems that the U.S. infrastructure was designed sort of on a 1950s model decades ago. And most of it was built then as well. And the idea was then of like suburbs and industrial Mm -hmm. or commercial spaces all being quite discreet. And it was built around the commuter. But of course, the changes that we're seeing increasingly for all sorts of reasons, not just economic, but environmental and just general social change, that that's not really going to work. And it's going to, there's a big problem, mainly centered around money that faces the US government, I think, at the minute, and trying to maintain the infrastructure they've got, but, you know, which they're struggling to do because of the, yeah. the budget problems, but also to try and make smarter, more integrated systems for the future. Right, right. And, you know, I feel like more cities are starting to shift towards kind of more bikeable, walkable areas. Um, I mean, even in this rural area where we're at, people see the benefits of, you know, cycling and biking. And so right now my husband, Logan's volunteering uh, with kind of the cycling committee and they're trying to do more bike maps. And they're talking about like the importance of bike tourism that comes in for these small towns and kind of doing events around cycling. Um, So particularly I think for rural areas, um, there's a huge benefit to having, um, you know, bike tourists come through or even like bike centered events. And um, so I think it's starting to shift, but it's slow. And, um, you know, I know there's lots of people who aren't willing to give up their cars, but, you know, you can always go car light too. You don't have to, have two or three cars, maybe just one, and then you can save money and and get more exercise. And we're seeing more carpool sort of uh, things evolving now, not just the idea that, I mean, you can just go and hire a car for the weekend if you need it or whatever, but people actually sharing cars on a sort of, it's, you know, not quite informal, but it's certainly more organic, uh, you know, grassroots basis. Yeah, definitely. And even for the more formal things, like in the States, we have um, Zipcar, and then there's, I think it's car to go And so they're all, it's car sharing services that you buy into and then can rent them out. And even for us right now, um, you know, my in-laws have uh, vehicles. And so we don't borrow them all the time. But like when the weather's really bad, um, we might use the car to go into town and and fill it up with gas for my father-in-law or whatever. And so we've tried to make it a little more workable. And um, it's definitely informal car sharing, but um, it's been really nice for us to have that option. Now, along with the the car, uh, that sort of totem of individual freedom, so-called, another great item on the consumer must-have list is the TV. I mean, ever ever since they began to dominate our sort of our our leisure lives, uh, too many of us, I fear. You and book describe also how you sort of disengaged with television gradually, uh, much to your benefit, both you and Logan, and also less computer time, uh, including the internet, which, of course, in both of these things, uh, you know, watching TV, surfing the net aimlessly, or playing computer games, the sort of excessive use of these methods, you know, to or, or trying to relax doing them, it's kind of encouraged by exhausting work days, which goes back to what we were saying earlier on. People coming in from work, absolutely exhausted, not able to engage in some of the things you were talking about, maybe creative mm-hmm. things or volunteering or even exercising. So mm-hmm. by, by getting rid of the TV or doing less of it and, and thinking about how you're, you're actually using your Internet time, you've been able to see great benefits there as well. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, one thing that I do when I start feeling kind of stuck about like how I'm really spending my time, I start tracking my time. And I know that's kind of, it sounds really geeky and it it sort of is, but it's also really helpful because, you know, if you just print out your calendar and you roughly track how you spend every hour, um, I guarantee that you're going to see openings um, of time or where you're spending your time that might not be beneficial. Like for me, watching three hours of TV a day when I came home, probably not the smartest strategy. You know, I pro- instead of doing that, um, you know, I, I would come home exhausted, but I could have used that time to just maybe meditate and recharge and then turn to like my creative endeavors. Because in, in some ways, I feel like, 
um, the TV is a huge distraction and just kind of numbs you out. And it's an easy tool to kind of um, ignore big problems, if that makes sense, instead of um, kind of refocusing and and asking kind of big questions about where you want to go with your life. And of course, it's the way that the corporations get billboards into our front rooms, you know, because on there is where so many messages come to people through the television, whether it's in commercials or simply in popular programs, you know, soap operas or so-called reality TV. It's all reinforcing ideas about, you know, what, what we should be trying to be, what we should want and what's going to make us happy. Yeah, exactly. And it's just not, it's not very healthy. And it kind of gets these messages stuck in your brain, at least for me, that was the case. And, um, you know, now I really don't watch that much TV or even movies. Um, I just, I read a ton, I probably read two or three books a week. And people are always like, well, how do you do that? (laughs) It's like, well, I I like spending my leisure time reading, I, I don't watch TV or, or, um, And I try not to surf the internet aimlessly. Of course, I still um, succumb to that once in a while, but I try and just be really mindful about how I spend my time. Well, I think there's that tracking your time is one of the single most important things and useful things that people can do if they if they feel that or know that they're not really being as efficient as they can be, or they're they're just not organized and they're not achieving their goals. I mean, there's a there's a great book came out a few years ago by a guy called Tim Ferriss. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. called called the Four Hour Work Week. Now, he's managed to get his life down to working four hours a week. Wouldn't we all like to do that? (laughs) But some of the strategies he outlines um, are very useful. And he basically says, you know, that when we take a close look at what we're doing or not doing, there's staggering amounts of time that we're wasting. You know, some people can spend more than 50 percent of their time on completely non-productive things. Yeah, it's it's amazing. (laughs) You know, and uh, we have um, limited time here, you know, and. Uh, For me, personally, last year taught me that life is uncertain, like you never know what's going to happen. And so I think it's really important to try and and be intentional about um, what you want, how you spend your time, because you just you don't know, you know, I had no idea that my dad would be gone. Um, And we recently had a a family friend die suddenly over the weekend and, you know, completely unexpected. It, It totally floored me. And it just reaffirms this idea that our time is short use it well you know you only get one chance yeah it's about people and experiences really isn't it that's one of the strong messages that Mm -hmm, your book puts across and it's about people in the sense of not just being with them but also in the situation that you face that they won't always be there so what do you want to do do you want to spend time with them having experiences or do you want to chase the stuff yeah I mean that's kind of for me what it boils down to and I you know, obviously, I, I want to spend the the time I have on relationships and um, doing work I love and trying to give back to my community. And you know, it's it's simple stuff, um, but sometimes it's it's easier said than done. <laughs> you also address a couple of issues. Well, there's kind of really one issue if you think about it, and that's what to do if your significant other is not on board with your idea about you know making changes, and also the issue of if you've got children that it can be more challenging to do this sort of thing with kids but it can be done and a lot of it's about communication really about sort of setting out what you're thinking and not just saying okay I'm going to throw all your toys away or actually we're going to go and live in a shack in the middle of nowhere it's about being (laughs) being positive about it and explaining the thinking behind it yeah exactly because you know you know like you said it really just comes back to communication like I was the spouse that was like I don't want to downsize what are you talking about I want to keep my stuff and so I totally get that perspective but um, you know after having lots of conversations with Logan about where we wanted to go with our lives I kind of shifted my perspective and um, I think that can be the same for like dealing with family or your kids or um, whatever it's it's really all about talking it through and um, particularly in the states I think we live in a culture that's always like gotta do things really fast hurry up get it done and it doesn't have to be that way and I think it's important to remember when you're talking about kind of making really big life changes it's going to take time to maybe get your spouse on board or um, to get your teenager on board with the idea too, you know, so it's, I really comes back to having conversations and being open. And also there's support to be had 
uh, if you begin this sort of journey in connecting with networks of other people doing the same sort of things? That's something that really helped me just um, maintaining my blog and kind of having that community of support online has been super. I mean, I, I think um, it's a great option, but I also think it's important to have, you know, the in-person relationships too, because there's only so much you can get from online relationships. Um, but it's also kind of a way to hold yourself accountable. Like as we downsized, I blogged about our process and, um, in that sense, I met some really cool people through that journey and I'm still blogging too. So now if there's any evidence needed that, uh, the commercial sort of westernized, uh, consumerist lifestyle is not making us happy as a whole, people can be pointed to some, I've mentioned this on here before, actually something called the happy planet index. Uh, their website is happyplanetindex.org, and they rank countries uh, in terms of the happiness experienced by their citizens. And it's quite instructive to look at their 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 rundown, the sort of like, you know, top pop chart of, you know, best places to be in terms of uh, happiness, which you know, there are several metrics they use to measure this. And actually, top five are not what a lot of people might expect. You have El Salvador, of all mm-hmm. places, at number five, and then running up through Belize, Colombia, which even I find hard to believe, what was the, the, you know, the drug barons and what have you. Then, right. Vietnam and top of the list currently is Costa Rica. Both the UK and the USA are well down that list and un- almost unbelievably they are both lower than Iraq. Now as mm-hmm. I said there's several metrics they use to calculate this one of which is ecological footprint. So obviously people in Iraq are using a lot less uh, you know energy and they're consuming a lot less uh, resources but nevertheless it's for the UK and the US to be below that is is amazing. It is amazing. And I was definitely um, really shocked when I was kind of reading about the index and how they, you know, do the calculations and where the U.S. fell. But at the same time, it, it makes sense. I mean, a lot of people that I talk to either online or maybe even acquaintances, they just seem um, not always satisfied with their lives. And I think, at least in my experience, you know, just with communicating with really close friends, friends and blog readers who have decided to um, start simplifying, they they become happier and just more grateful and start creating more resilient lives, which is, um, you know, really important. And um, I think we can learn a lot from the countries who kind of rank higher on those lists. Almost diametrically opposed to the Happy Planet Index idea a lot of our governments, you know, US, Europe, uh, Australia, Canada, places like that, they're using this uh, GDP, gro- uh, gross oh. domestic product figure, uh, which is linked to growth. And these days, particularly in the teeth of all the economic problems we're facing, they're banging on about growth. We must get back to growth. And if the GDP figures rise in a particular month, this is being touted as progress. But actually, there's these figures, really, when you look at them, are virtually useless because gross domestic product itself just measures economic activity. So if mm-hmm. there was a huge flu pandemic and lots of vaccines had to be bought and lots of people were hospitalized and lots of ambulances had to buy a lot more gas to drive around, that would increase the GDP. But you couldn't really argue that that's a good thing. And there's a quote in your book, which I really like from Robert Kennedy. And he characterizes GDP by saying that it doesn't register the health of our children, the quality of their education or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. Mm-hmm. I love that quote. It's um, it's so spot on, <laughs> I think, um, because, yeah, I mean, GDP, it's uh it's a strange metric. I mean, I just don't feel like it measures like the really important things like Kennedy is talking about in that quote. And yet in amongst the public as well, not just politicians and economists and what have you, we do see a lot of people who at the minute, as things sort of get worse for a certain type of consumerist materialistic lifestyle, that they, they cling to these old ideas and they're sort of desperate for the status quo to mm-hmm. to be being maintained and there's sort of a cognitive dissonance almost that arises because reality is becoming so incompatible with the beliefs of those old lifestyles 
Yeah, it's it's really strange. And I, I'm just not, I'm always flabbergasted by kind of the debate in the U.S. with all the politics and kind of the conversation, like the big conversations that are happening. I just don't feel like um, they're very sane or touch on how we can really build happy and resilient communities. You know, it's, um, it's just very, very disconnected. And I don't know how to make that better. I, I only know that I can, for myself personally, kind of lead by example, and then in my own community, give back, you know, because when I think about kind of that overarching debate, I get really frustrated. (laughs) So I kind of go back to those um, micro actions that I talk about in the book and um, focus on on the stuff that I can control. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important to do that. Perhaps the nadir or sign that we'd reached the nadir in, of the age of shopping in the century of the consumer is the idea of Black Friday, which I mean, a lot of people, I think a lot of Americans do as well, but um, certainly a lot of us over here have looked at the footage of that and just been just wondering if that's the same species really as us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's a strange uh, kind of, uh, I guess, it could almost be classified as a holiday by some people, like they do the Black Friday stuff religiously every year. and uh, It's a holiday. Yeah, exactly. And I just, I don't, um, even when I shopped a lot, I never was um, too keen on doing the Black Friday thing. I just feel like, you know, it's it's right after a holiday. Like, why aren't people at home with their families or outside taking a walk, you know, or spending time with their kids, but instead like they're in Walmart fighting over the latest toy or iPod that's on the market. It's just very, it's very strange. And I think a symptom of um, a lot of unhappiness. Perhaps we should just say for people who don't know, because I don't actually have all the information here. I'm just going on a few YouTube videos, but it seems that Black Friday is this day where the big box stores have some crazy sale, a lot of stuff heavily discounted. People queue up mm-hmm. sometimes in the thousands overnight to get in, and people have been killed at these events. Yeah, it's, I mean, you described it really well. It's basically, you know, these big box stores, they have massive sales, and, um, you know, they're, even in like New York City, there have been instances where people like literally camp out overnight, um, just hundreds of people like waiting to get into the store to buy stuff. Um, and it's just, it's very strange, (laughs) um, you know, and again, it's kind of like, well, I'm just not really sure how that brings people joy in the long, long term. I mean, you're going to get a high off the stuff you buy in, in the short run, but, um, kind of over the long run in your life, I don't think that it's really going to necessarily make you more grateful or, or joyful in your everyday life. Well, I'm kind of personally hoping it's a darkest before dawn sort of situation with that mm-hmm. with that type of behavior. But to be turn to positive aspects of this, you talked earlier about the importance of uh, centrality in all of this of making more time to be creative and to do the things that you really want to do and to help others and you know, volunteer, just whatever it is that calls to you. And the bigger picture of all this, the, the ability to start rebuilding a sense of community as people do engage more in civic life, because that has been eroded greatly in in the last 50 years with all of this consumerism. Yeah. And, you know, it's been interesting for me um, living out here on the ranch where we're out with my in-laws and um, on the surface, it it might seem like uh, there's no community because everyone's so spread out. But in a lot of ways, um, I feel like, um, people are almost more apt to help each other because it's, it is a small community. And so, um, you know, when a neighbor needs help with farming or maybe moving cattle, people volunteer readily. And it's, it's been pretty amazing to see that. Um, and I, and so I think it's kind of possible to kind of recreate those community connections, but it's definitely been cool for me to see out here in rural America. (laughs) Well, it's it's um, been mentioned. It's how the, sort of that interaction and that cooperative behavior is how a lot of things in our life actually happen. It's just we've been encouraged to, you know, to zone out in front of a TV on our own or in our own houses and not engage with other people. You think in times of, you know, disaster, for example, you see people all helping each other and 
the the Amish have this thing where you know if, if one of their houses is well destroyed maybe in a disaster I can't remember barn raising I think they call it and mm-hmm. it's amazing what people can do if they work together and not just look to outside agencies who are increasingly unable to help them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of, you know, those close community ties with family and friends. Um, It's just so, so important. And, um, you know, like we loved living in Portland, but part of the decision to move back to California was to just be closer to family and and kind of um, reconnect with them because Portland was just too far and it makes it hard to um, really have strong bonds if you're a seven hour drive away. Tammy, as we sort of begin to wind things up for today, I do think that even if it's by necessity, that we are seeing this sort of age of excessive materialism coming to an end. Now, a lot of people in the mainstream will be dragged kicking and screaming into this, but you know, one way or another it's going to happen. And I think that if people start to examine maybe their feelings about these issues and whether they are really living the way that they want to and make some voluntary changes, uh, you know, and do it now, they can emerge, you know, happier and healthier out the other side. Yeah, and I I definitely agree. And also kind of remembering that, like, living simply and maybe um, more a more small, smaller life, either in your home or, um, you know, moving closer to family doesn't mean it, it's about austerity. You know, it's, it's really, for me, it's like focusing on those experiences and relationships that um, can bring you, I think, the most joy. Okay, well, Tammy, in conclusion, I'd like to tell people about your blog. I say Rowdy Kittens. I love the name of that. It's actually the reason I looked at it first because I said, I've got to check this out. I don't know what it is. <laughs> and then we've got a website for your photography, and you can perhaps tell people, uh, I presume your book is available just on Amazon and uh, places like that. But just anything else that you'd like to share, really, about your work? Oh, sure. Well, you know, if you have a chance, check out my blog. It's rowdykittens.com and um, you'll find my all my writing there and my photos. Um, I teach e-courses and then, um, you know, you can buy my book directly on my website or from amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, from Powell's and um, uh, also from my publisher, New World Library. Okay. Well, Tammy, thank you very much for joining us today on legalizefreedom.com. Thank you. Well, that is indeed it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the website, legalizefreedom.com. That's legalize-freedom.com. And there you'll find an archive of programs on many equally fascinating topics. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com. <laughs>